Hello and welcome to the Free Life Community Church Podcast. My name is John DeLille, and I'm the communications guy at Free Life Community Church in Terre Haute, Indiana. Each week, Senior Pastor Dan Willis brings a rich, detailed, and relevant message grounded in Scripture, which is recorded on Sunday mornings and made available for you right here. You can find more messages at freelifecc.com or in the Google Play and iTunes podcast app. Hey, if you've benefited from listening to these messages, we ask that you try to help us out. You can help us out in two different ways. First, you can give us a rating in the app store that you use. Secondly, share this podcast with a family member, a friend, or a colleague. This really does help us to get these messages into the hands of the people who can really benefit from them. All right, without further ado, here's Senior Pastor Dan Willis. Church, how are you? Good. That good? Okay. <laughs> well, good morning to everybody who's... Uh, Joining us online, we have canceled our services at our Mecca campus today due to a COVID outbreak. And so, friends, I just think that this is going to be something we're going to have to do once in a while. And so I just keep praying that the Lord will lick this thing and eradicate it. Amen? Amen. I serve a mighty God. Do you? And I'm excited for what God's going to do. I'm also excited uh, that God has given me a a series of messages that I think uh, you're going to really enjoy. Uh, I know I've enjoyed putting them together, and God has given me strength and help in doing so. Uh, It is my great joy in life, believe it or not, uh, to be a teacher of the Word of God. uh, I've done a lot of things in my life, probably too much. But I don't think anything has given me greater joy than God enlightening me with His Word and allowing me to go to great lengths for education. And let's face it, (laughs) to continue to learn every single day from him. And I don't know that there's a greater calling in life than that. I really don't. I know in society we would find uh, other jobs and occupations and vocations to be more important. Uh, I do not. And uh, I know why. And I'm grateful that God still sits on the throne. He continues to instruct us. He continues to indwell and infill us by the power of his spirit. And that in the end, (laughs) we win. Are you? And so God is uh, pretty amazing, in case you haven't figured it out. And I'm hoping that today uh, he will enlighten and enrich you in a manner that will help you to live according to his commands. And in doing so, we have to be godly. We have to be like him. Are we not commanded to be like him? He's created us in his image, but we have to choose to be like him. And so, in this sermon series, living a godly life in an ungodly society, <laughs> I, think, I think that this might be proving difficult for some people, amen? Particularly as we get closer and closer to Christ's return. Anybody agree with me on that? You think that life's becoming increasingly difficult? You think the devil is becoming increasingly popular and powerful? I think his ways are, if nothing else. I think he's masked himself so well. And there is actually a Bible study out there called Unmasking Satan. I taught it many years ago. I think I have it somewhere. I'm not real sure. Uh, either way, I might have loaned it out. It, some, it happens a lot. And it doesn't often come back. Either way, at least somebody's hopefully using it and getting uh, something from it. But Satan uh, has masked himself well. I don't think very many people out there would say, I'm a, I'm a devil or Satan worshiper or follower. But you don't have to say that. Don't even have to believe it. All you have to do is conduct yourself, think in many ways, and act in the manner way that he wants you to. That's all you have to do. And there's a lot of people doing that today not realizing it. And that's why it's increasingly difficult to live a godly life pursuing the things of Christ in an ungodly society. And so today, our first sermon in that series is taking God seriously. Now, you might have kind of grasped that already. Uh, Maybe uh, it's from the prayer that we had and things I talked about in it. But I think, friends, we don't necessarily take God seriously. If you have your Bibles, turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 10. I'm going to begin at verse 1, scroll through verse 13. And I'm going to read today out of the contemporary English version. I had a great time. I think I read this in 26 different versions. And uh, they're all incredibly similar. 
but this one, I really like the way the contemporary English draws some of these things out, and you'll get the gist of it as you follow along with in whatever version that you have. NIV is typically the most popular today, but Christian uh, standard is becoming very popular, and I like it very much. Uh, either way, uh, whatever you're using today, I think you'll see what the writer in the Apostle Paul is trying to say. He says in, ch in chapter 10, verse 1, friends, begins this way, friends, in other words, he's speaking to whom? Other Christians, believers, right? Friends. And anybody, I dare say, this is a beautiful way, one commentator said, anybody who's a friend of God. Wow. So, friends of God, you can start it that way. I want to remind you that all of our ancestors walked under the cloud and went through the sea. This was like being baptized and becoming followers of Moses. All of them also ate the same spiritual food and drank the same spiritual drink, which flowed from the spiritual rock that followed them. And that rock was Christ. But most of them, get this, did not please God. In other words, most of these people believed in God, they banked on God, they trusted God to a point, but they didn't necessarily please Him. In other words, as a Christian, you can believe in God, but not please Him. Did you know that? Okay. So, he says, they died and their bodies were scattered all over the desert. And of course, we know that. What happened to them is a warning to keep us from wanting to do the same evil things. In other words, God's grace will not save nor protect you if you continue to do sinful and evil things. Now, if ever you need a clarification, you just got it. Yikes, amen? He said, what did they do? They worshipped idols. Just as the scriptures say, the people sat down to eat and drink. They got up to dance around. So don't worship idols, pure and simple. Some of these people did shameful things. And in a single day, about 23,000 of them died. So don't do shameful things as they did. And he says, don't try to test Christ, as some of them did and were later bitten by poisonous snakes. Don't even grumble, as some of them did, and were killed by the destroying angel. These things happened to them as a warning to us. That's the key today. These things happened to those people who did those things, and remember, did not please God, even though they considered themselves to be His people. That those things happened to them as a warning to you and me, anybody who's reading today, amen? Okay, make sure you're still with me here. All of this was written in the Scripture to teach us to live in these last days. And your ears ought to perk up to that. I want to know how to live as a godly man in these last days. Do you want to learn how to live as a godly person in these last days? Yes or no? Well, here's the deal. If you don't, I think there's a door out of here. But if you do, and you're serious about it, then God has a message for you. Amen? And aren't you grateful that God always has a message for those who are serious about living a godly life in these last days? Because I am. So even if you think you stand up to temptation, be careful not to fall. In other words, don't be too self-confident. I call it false confidence. And there's an awful lot of it out there. You, he says, are tempted in the same way that everyone else is tempted. You're, you don't have anything special about you that keeps you from temptation. We're all the same. You know what holds back temptation? Jesus Christ. The power of His Spirit. He says, but God can be trusted, and this is how, not to let you be so tempted or tempted too much. And he will show you how to escape from your temptations. I want to know. Anybody want to know how to escape your temptations? Okay. Well, God's going to tell you. First of all, friends, we, according to God, according to the Apostle Paul, 
according to everything I can read in the Scripture, no matter who penned it, we are to pursue godliness. We're to pursue it. And since we're commanded to be godly, then I would say that, yeah, we ought to be pursuing it. Amen? This means that we have to take God seriously. Now, you would think, you would, you would imagine, you would believe, I, I suspect, that a Christian today wouldn't have to be told or reminded that we are to take God seriously. You would think they would automatically know that. I, I think as a Christian, I automatically know I, I pretty much have to take God seriously. Anybody in here believe you have to take God seriously? Do you just know that as a Christian? I would think so. But let me ask you a fascinating question. Are you ready? Fascinating. Do you think God believes that you take Him seriously? And I had to think about that for a second. I think, oh, some days. Maybe other days, not so much. Have you ever found yourself, and well, you haven't maybe yet because you haven't been posed a question, but as, you know, several months ago when I started putting this together and I was doing these potluck sermons that we've done over the last several weeks, I began to think about this question. I began to ponder on it. And I found myself pondering on it as I drove places, different thing, in different, when I had a little bit of downtime, you know. And, and here's what I found. Sometimes my behavior, my speech, my attitude doesn't prove that I take God seriously. Because if I did, I would allow God to change it into what he wants it to be. Amen? Anybody? anybody? Yeah, I, I, I would do that, see? And so I began to think about that more and more and more. And I thought, you know, church, no higher compliment can be paid to a Christian man or woman, a Christian teenager, a Christian child. And believe me, you, they're, they're the same. Yeah? We are to be Christians and our understanding starts very young, if it's taught. Keep that in your mind. But no greater compliment can be paid to a Christian than to refer to him or her as a godly person. No greater compliment. You see, this person takes God and the things of God seriously. I think we might take God seriously, but not necessarily the things of God. Don't you hate it when those things have to be separated? Because it calls to your attention how you ought to act. I think a lot of people believe in God. But not very many people live for God. Big difference, isn't there? You can almost hear a pin drop in here. You see, godliness is not an option in the development of contagious Christian character. We've made it that, but it isn't an option. In fact, holiness is not reserved for a few quaint Christians of this bygone era or for some group of super saints today. Now, I know that certain things in our life and society are for elite groups of people. I get that. But it isn't so as it relates to the Christian life. In fact, the privilege and duty of every Christian is to pursue godliness, to study godliness, and to, get this, practice godliness. You won't get very good at anything. You won't become accomplished at anything unless you study it and practice it. I aspire to be a tremendous piano player. Problem is, I'm not. Why? Because I don't practice. Oh, I know how to play it. I'm just not very good at it. I play the right hand pretty well. But I don't play the left hand very well because I don't read bass clef too good. I probably could be better, I think. 
I'll bet you if I spent 15 minutes, 20 minutes a day, come over here, jump on that thing, I'll bet you in about a year I'd be pretty good. But I don't. So why do I expect to be good? Why do I aspire or hope that I'll by osmosis become good at it when I don't practice it? You could make that statement on any single thing that you aspire to be or do. That's some food for thought, isn't it? Now, the Old Testament tells us about this group of people, these Hebrews, these ancient Hebrews, you know, who, who failed to take God seriously. They escaped the slavery and the punishment of Egyptian rule. And on their journey home to Israel, they witnessed this amazing miracle of God parting the waters of the Red Sea, you know. And then as he saved them by parting it, he brought doom and destruction and death upon the pursuers in the Egyptians upon them. The same sea saved some people and caused destruction for another group. Stunning, isn't it? Think about it. These people had everything. God guided them with a cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. He delivered them out of Egypt, which is what they all wanted to have happen. They all prayed for it. They all hoped for it. They all craved it to happen. And God did it. They walked on dry ground through the Red Sea, and God's leader Moses was out in front of them. He provided food, God did, with manna from heaven and water from the rock. You can read all about it. It's in there. They were surrounded by unparalleled enemies and yet unparalleled privileges, and God brought them through, and all they had to do was keep their eyes focused on Him. His presence was constant. His workings were evident and everything that they experienced. And yet, you'll remember, they have been given this heritage of godliness. In fact, one would think that these people would be the epitome of holiness, but they weren't. They were human. In fact, the Apostle Paul wrote of these people, nevertheless, God was not pleased with most of them, because they were struck down in the wilderness. And as they journeyed from Egypt, friends, they played games with their lives because they played games with God. Yeah? Here's a question. <laughs> Are you playing games with God? Do you know before I could ask you that, I had to ask myself that. Are you playing games with God? And I hate to admit it, but sometimes I have. On a rare occasion, I still do. Oh, he gets my attention when I'm doing it. And the first thing I'll do is say, no, 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 God, I'm, I'm not playing games with you. No, I, I wouldn't do that. God said, oh, yes, you would. <laughs> yes, you would. You see, it's not hard to do. Are you playing games with God? Yes. No. Maybe. Well, what would God say? What would God say you're doing? Oh, don't you just hate that? When you've got to put it in God's hands and let Him make the determination. See, we all hate that. Right? But let's take a look at some of the truths to find out. First, first what does godliness mean? Have you ever wondered what godliness means? Anybody? I mean, have, you, have you really ever wondered what that is? I mean, what happened to these potential saints? What caused their demise? What caused them to not please God? Paul, again, warns us in verse 7. He says, look, first of all, don't become idolaters. And you're thinking, well, I'm good because I'm not. Really? Let me tell you something. I think that's another thing we don't even know what it is. We don't know what idolatry is. We think it's having pagan images in our house and worshiping them. No, no, no. That's not all what it is. And by the way, you're doing it anyway. Because any 
single thing that you put before God is an idol. Anything. That car that you love, that house that you live in, even your own children and spouse can be an idol. It gets between you and God. Do you know some people would argue that? But God not arguing. He says that's the way it is. And if God says it's the way it is, then don't we have to say that's the way it is? Yeah, of course. Don't become idolaters. That's what he says. But the people of that era did it anyway. They didn't think they were becoming idolaters, but they were. You see, life became all about them. And this, I, the way the Bible puts it, just one big party. You've heard it, eat, drink, and be merry. Oh, I think there's nothing wrong with that. But let's put it in perspective, because God does. And Paul says, don't you do the same. How can you eat, drink, and be merry when your life isn't godly? You shouldn't be. You shouldn't eat, drink, and be merry until you are square and right before God. Do you think there are people in the Christian church today that are eating and drinking and being merry and their lives aren't square before God? I think it's very possible. And Paul says, don't. And here's the question. Paul says, don't, do, don't you do the same. He's writing to you and me. And the, question, and the question is, are we? I think the answer is we are. Because our lives prove it. God is not number one in the life of every Christian on the planet today. Is he? He isn't our first priority. Is he? In fact, everything else is our first priority. Anything else is, even in the church. It's happening. You see, this is what Paul's saying. And it's pretty hard to dispute it, but like the Hebrews, we're pretty good at disputing it. <laughs> we're pretty good at making a case for ourselves. The Hebrews lacked a reverence and, a, and an awe for God. See, that's, that's kind of where it begins. They became callous to the spirit and the divine nature. They became careless in their values. They forgot their heritage. They forgot their calling. They were apathetic. And they took God for granted. Now, of course, nobody in modern Christianity would do that. And yet we are. The church is. The Hebrews didn't mean business when it came to godliness. Their relationship with him became a farce because God says it was. And I began to think, does this sound familiar? Does it look familiar? At least admit, friends, today, even if you don't necessarily agree, that we as a church, we as a Christian peoples around the globe have become very careless with our value system. Are you willing to admit that? Because I've seen the value system of society change rapidly in the last 20 years, the last 30 years. It began about 30 years ago, and it rapidly increased the change did in the last 15 or so. Anybody notice it? So if you're going to be willing to admit that, because it's kind of evident right in front of you, and if you're willing to admit this, that this has happened, then you know that the rest has to be true as well, because that's where it begins. So here's a question. What's happened to the modern American Christian. I'm, let, let's not worry about Christians around the world. Let's just worry about American Christians. Let's start here. we got enough on our plate. What's happened to the modern American Christian, the modern American church? You see, never in the history of the world has one country been so blessed. Never. We are inundated with churches. It seems like a new church pops up every single week somewhere. Why? Because it can. I don't know that they should necessarily. That's a sermon for another day. But they are. Churches are popping up everywhere. So there's all sorts of opportunity for Christians to be in church. Amen? Okay. 
Then you got Christian radio and television. And I listen to both. Anybody? Okay. You got Christian magazines, Christian books, Christian schools, Christian conferences, Christian seminars. And so on, and so on, and so on. In fact, never before has the potential for religious instruction been so necessary. Our churches should be overflowing with godly men and women, godly children, godly teenagers. But are they? All too often, we walk down the same paths of this carnality that these ancient Hebrews did and act like we're not. We refuse to take seriously those things that God says we ought to honor. We laugh at what we should be weeping about. We play games with ourselves over things that we should be taking quite seriously. You know, friends, I began to think about that, and I thought, you know, we would probably never argue with our medical doctor, our attorney. Hmm. Yeah? our financial advisors. Maybe not even our college professors. But yet we will argue with pastors and Bible teachers simply because they'll teach the truth and we don't want to hear that. We want to make Christianity what we want it to be, not what God says it is. I know that because I have friends and even other pastor friends that do it. And you know what kills me? I call them on it all the time. And I say, how can you believe that or teach that when the Bible doesn't say that? And I'll even show them in the Scripture where it says it. And they stop arguing. And you know what they say? We'll just have to agree to disagree. Really? At least argue with me as to why you think it. At least show me the basis of your belief system. Because you're teaching an awful lot of people what I consider heresy and falsehoods. Why? Because you're afraid that you might lose them as a tither? Because you might hurt their feelings? I would rather hurt your feelings all the way to eternity, friends. And I'd like to think you'd do the same for me. Amen? You see, what our true Bible-teaching pastors are doing is teaching things that we don't like. We'd rather they teach things that's more to our liking. And you'll find that a lot of times that becomes the popular. But remember, pastors are called to instruct you. And God's going to hold them accountable. Every one of them. In fact, the Bible indicates to a higher standard. I don't think their hell will be any worse if they don't but God will hold them to a higher standard, which means their chances of it, of going there, are higher. We rely on people, such as our doctors, our financial advisors, our attorneys and professionals. And we ought to rely on our pastors too, and our Bible teachers, because they're educated and informed. So why would we argue with clergy who are also educated and informed? And yet, it's a great question, and we do it. And this is what I'll, the deal I'll make with you, and I've made it again and again. If I teach something that you don't think is right, please bring your scripture and talk to me. Please. 
I beg you. Because I'm not going to give you my opinion. I'm going to get the word of God out. We're going to do it together. Let's see what God says about it. Isn't that what you're looking for? I would like to think you should be able to do that with any Bible teacher, any clergy on the planet. I would think and hope that they would make that deal with you. Do you know, friends, that at its foundation, godliness is absolutely taking God seriously? That's what it is. Because the heartbeat of the godly person is the desire to respect and revere the things of God. That's what it is. It doesn't mean we're to be serious all the time. I've seen Christians that did that. They were so rule-laden that they had no joy or happiness whatsoever. I, I, don't, I don't think God ever, and this is my opinion, but I'm pretty sure the Bible backs it up, I don't believe God ever wanted that for His humanity. But the pendulum, unfortunately, has swung way too far the other direction. And now it's a free-for-all. And you can do anything you want because grace will cover you. That's what I hear over and again. And, you know, and tell a, tell a person who wants to believe that, that grace will not cover those things, and they flip out on you. And yet the Bible indicates that it doesn't. Why would God write to Christians to warn them if it did? Because if grace covered everything, why be godly? Be no purpose. Agreed? God wants you to enjoy life. I believe that. He gave you life for that reason and that purpose. He enjoys you. You enjoy Him. Life together. Amen? And this one, as well as the one that's coming. God wants you to enjoy it. But to do so means to take God seriously and be like Him. In other words, be godly. So, what does godliness look like? Well, that's the million-dollar question. Because everybody's got a different opinion about what godliness looks like. Some people think being godly is following these rules and regulations. Some people think it's just enjoying God's grace. Some people are somewhere in between, and some people make up things as they go. Christians now. We're talking about Christians here. Godliness is whatever you want it to be. But God doesn't say that. In fact, God has never said that. I don't believe most modern Christians actually know what godliness looks like. You see, we're, we're too busy trying to feel good and serve ourselves. We don't like anything that requires, get this, self-sacrifice. Not interested in that. And since this is true, pretty hard to argue, it's also difficult to be godly, friends. Have you noticed this? It's difficult to be godly when everything's about you. It's funny, I just figured that out. I think I knew it all the time, but I don't know that I practiced it particularly. When when things are about me, and they are sometimes, it's pretty hard for me to be godly. When I'm worried about if you're talking behind my back or you're slamming me behind my back or you're disliking something I did or didn't do or you didn't understand what happened or what didn't happen, and this goes on, if I, I mean, I'm not saying it does. I think it probably does. But when I worry about that, I'm self-serving. I'm self-protecting. I'm self-aware. I would rather be Godly serving, yeah, God aware, and anything godly, because I should be. So here's the question, how do you know if you're taking God seriously or not? How do you know? Well, I think several distinct behaviors radiate, I love that word, that radiate. You know why? Because when I was at Silver Lake School in Silver Lake, Indiana, and if, and if uh, my sixth grade teacher, who I uh, greatly esteem, is watching, and sometimes I think he might, 
uh, uh, he, he will probably not be upset with me any longer to know that I would take my crayons and I would, I would melt them on the radiator that I sat next to. I like that. Radiate. Because the closer to the radiator you sat, the warmer you were going to be in a school that was built way back when and had radiated heat. And it was funny that the closer to the radiator I was, the warmer I got because the heat radiated from it. And the further away, I didn't feel the radiation so much. You understand? So that, that gives me a proximity to God here. <laughs> I want behaviors that are godly to radiate from me. And I want people to notice it. And the closer to me they get, the more of God they see. This is, this is what I'm after. Because that's what godliness is, you see. And here's what happens. There are distinct behaviors. This is what they are. You ready? There are four of them. You have to have a thirst for God. You have to begin with a thirst for God. Because godly people long for God. David expresses it this way. As the deer pants for streams of water, so my soul pants for you. O oh God, my soul thirsts for God, for the living God. Where can I go and meet with God? Now, there's a song in there. You remember it? We haven't sung it in a while. But as the deer pants for the water, yeah? So my soul longs after you. That's a song. David wrote it as a song. It was lyricized as a song. And it comes from Psalm 42. What could be more intense than a hunted deer's thirst for water? Anybody, any deer hunters in here? Who's a deer hunter? Who's ever hunted deer? Who's ever, if, if, if it's brown, it's down, right? Who, some of you may be sickened by that, but listen, w without killing of animals, you don't eat. But here's the deal. I know that when I shoot a deer, he's heading for water. I know it for a fact. Am I right, deer hunters? Yes or no? 100%. Run into water. And I'll look for a stream. I'll follow a stream. Chances are, if I lose a blood, blood trail somewhere, if I go find a stream, I'll find that deer if I walk up and down it. Because that's where they go and usually die there. That's a fact. And so you think about that. Even in wartime, men and women who have been injured, their thirst is insatiable. When you begin to lose blood, that's what happens. Because your body's made up mostly of water. And so you crave water. Nothing else, just water, you know. And so as I thought about that, I realized what could be more intense. Do you thirst for God like that, like you're desperate for it? Like, like if you don't get it, you'll die, because that's exactly what he's saying. If you don't thirst for God like that, you'll die. You have a craving for God. Intensity for God is the heartbeat of a godly person. That's what it is. Godliness doesn't come by sitting passively or for, by waiting for it to drop in your lap. It requires hard work. Have you noticed that, by the way? It's harder to be a Christian today than it was 20 years ago. It takes hard work. It requires this enduring perseverance. Because everything around you is going to try to deter you and keep you from pursuing godliness. And the devil's behind all of it. You knew that, right? Everything around you. It takes a continued effort. And in a manner of speaking, you have to run for it with everything you've got. Are you? My guess is no. No. You know how I know? Because I haven't. Not always. You see, the godly person is content in their relationship with God, but they're never satisfied with the present experience of him. They want more. They want more. I don't want to just experience God on Sunday morning. I want God all the time. Anybody? I don't want to just experience him when I'm around you or on Wednesday nights or on Sunday nights or whenever. I, I, I don't want just, a, I want more and more and more of him. And the more I get of him, the more I want. That's what it's supposed to be. You also 
Secondly, have to be focused on God. Now, that's hard to do. It shouldn't be, but it is. Because you're supposed to focus on the bigger things of life, and God's pretty big. So what's causing us to look past Him or around Him or beyond Him? Well, you know what it is. The pursuer of godliness focuses his attention on God in every single thing, in all things. God is a part of every single thing they do, every time. And the trouble and tragedy of modern humans is that we tend to divert our focus away from God. And when we do, by the way, it's entirely possible to become an idolater. When you divert your focus from God, you are in grave danger of becoming an adulterer. You can name it or claim it in any way that you want. You can call it anything you want. But anything that gets between you and God is an idol. And sometimes that's people. Sometimes it's your passion for other things. Sometimes it's your job. Sometimes it's your house. Sometimes it's your car. It's your instruments. It's your hobbies. It's whatever. All of those things are an idol to somebody. And sometimes it's you. You see, an idol is anything that draws our attention and I dare say our adoration away from God. And God demands it. Christian author who died in the late 90s by the name of Jerry Bridges. You may not know who he is, but I'll bet you it's possible you remember the Navigators, the Navigators 2-7 series. Pastor Bob, I know you know what they are. Uh, they were very popular. 2-7 series was amazing. And Navigator series is... is uh, uh, has several different Bible studies in it. Uh, he was one of the authors of that series. And it was fantastic. It still is even today. Uh, in any case, he wrote a book once called the, the, the Joy of Fearing God. And in it, uh, Jerry Bridges says, Godliness is an exercise or discipline that focuses upon God. Godliness is an exercise or a discipline that focuses on God. He said, it's pretty difficult to be godly when you focus on self or others. Amen to that. So when you're focusing on self or others, and we do it all the time, by the way, much more than we think we do, it's pretty hard to be godly. Do you know what else is required for a godly life? Number three, you have to practice true worship of God. And I want to call your attention to this real quick because I think sometimes we misinterpret this heavily. You see, worship enables us to acknowledge God properly. I, I, think, that's a, I think that's a tremendous way of looking at it. Worship enables us to focus on God properly. Because if you're not worshiping God, you're probably focusing on what He can do for you. Probably have a request in there somewhere, maybe several. But if you're worshiping God, you're in the moment, all you're trying to do is get more of God. See the difference? So worship enables you to acknowledge God properly. We see Him as He is when we worship. And how is He? Majestic and sovereign. God is majestic and sovereign. And we see ourselves as we are, you know, when we're worshiping God, which is finite and helpless. Really, we are. W w listen, without Christ, I'm helpless. Anybody? Without Christ, I'm helpless. Listen, I can do a lot of things. I am a resourceful person. I, I, I can do about anything I set my mind to. But that's just me. Without Christ, I'm still doomed in eternity. You see? So I'm helpless and limited because of that. And there's no end to my limit. I can't go any further. But He... He dragged me out of the miry clay. And he set my feet on the rock to stay. And without him, I can't do it. I could never even get there. You, so you can see why it's so important we understand that. The godly person, friends, removes him or herself from the center of their own world. Problem with it is, we're raising our kids to think that they're 
the center of their world. We're all doing it. And I'm doing it to my grandkids too sometimes. And I'm keenly aware of that. No, I don't need any th thoughts from you. <laughs> I'm going to spoil my grandkids. That's okay. But here's the deal. I still have to have a responsibility in helping to raise them properly. And with my great-grandkids, it's the same. And, and I don't have any yet, praise the Lord. But I hope one day I will. Nate's a little young yet. But I'm hoping for some. You see, we've got this idea that we take our hands off and let our children raise their children. Yeah, that's our responsibility. But you have to continue to impart wisdom and responsibility. And let's face it, some parents aren't doing so well. And we have responsibility. Every society that's ever made it, including the American uh, natives, did it. They still do to a point. You see, we, we have responsibility as a family and as a church family to raise children properly. Yeah? Doesn't Christianity call for that? Of course it does. And when we remove ourselves from the center of our world, which we have to do, even though Satan's trying to tell you to put yourself in the center of your world, God says, no, put me there. God says, not me, but him. Yeah? God says, put him there. When you, when you remove yourself, it puts God in his proper place. And that puts God at the center of your world, which is where he belongs. Amen? How many of you could say that you didn't put God in the center of your world this week sometime, and that you were in the middle of that world? Or something else? Would you be willing to admit it? I, you don't got to tell me. But you see, you see, it's easy, isn't it? It's easy to do. In fact, the Greek word translated godliness is ephsavia. Ephsavia. And it embodies the idea of worship, which is rightly directed toward God. And this is more, by the way, than simply singing Christian songs and raising your hands and swaying to the beat. That's what we think it is. That's just the tip of the iceberg of what worship toward God is. And unfortunately, some people wrap all their worship in that. And if they're not happy with the music at a church, they'll find another one. Or if they're not happy with the music they get in their church, they'll complain about it. Or, or not come, or whatever. And friends, that's just a part of your worship. That's the small part of your worship. Actually, according to Paul. Because Paul says in Romans 12.1, and Chip Ingram does an amazing Bible study on Romans 12. Yes or no, Pastor Chris? Fantastic. And if you've not done it, you ought to do it. And he embodies and embraces and talks about this worship toward God. And, and Paul says that we are offering our bodies, our entire lives, to God. And that is our true and spiritual worship. Nowhere in there is it talking about singing the songs and hymns that you like. Offering yourself to God is your spiritual act of worship. And if you're going to be a godly person, you have to practice true worship of God, which means giving of yourself to Him. Surrender. Control. Center of your world, your universe. God. Friends, we can't do that when we live our lives for ourselves or for others. It's not possible. And lastly, a godly person must practice service toward other people. Okay? And not in the manner and way that we typically do. It doesn't mean feeding them all the time. It doesn't mean patting them on the back all the time. You may have to do those things, and you should. But some people, you're hurting them when you do that. You understand that, right? You do understand that, right? Are you sure? Serving people by teaching them about Jesus Christ is the best thing you can possibly do. And to rely on Him rather than anything else.
You see, the godly individual not only gives God his due, he also serves his fellow people and gives them his contribution. And if you've ever studied American literature, then you've likely heard of Oliver Wendell Holmes Sr. And he once said, Some people are so heavenly minded that they're no earthly good. Wow. Friends, we're too busy trying to be earthly good. You'll fail as a Christian if you do that. Don't be earthly good. Be heavenly and godly minded. That will encompass everything on earth, I'm telling you. God doesn't always want you to do what society says you should do for other people. God doesn't want every single church to do the same thing, neither. You understand that? Some things, yes. But when we aspire as a congregation to model the things that we consider successful at other churches, we failed. We are to seek the Lord with all of our heart, mind, and strength to study the Word of God, become godly, make Him the center of our world, and when we do that, We'll do that as a congregation and be exactly what God wants us to be. And you won't if you're trying to model somebody else. What if somebody else is wrong? What if somebody else isn't doing those things and they're doing what society says they ought to be doing? It stuns me when non-Christians will come to me if, if I've said something or done something or haven't done something and they say, oh, and you call yourself a Christian. My response is, oh, well, you're not one, so how would you know? It stuns me how much society dictates to the church what Christianity is and ought to be. No! That's for God to say. And always has been. Yes? You see, friends, it's when people are so heavenly minded that they can be of incredible earthly good, whether the earth understands it or not. You see, as we invest time with God, He will guide us to serve others. Godly people know that service is a result of our growth through our worship. Not the music we sing, but the surrender of ourselves and making God the center of our world. It's pretty hard to do when you love your spouse and your children so much. But to love them properly, God has to be in the center every time. And nobody outside of Christianity will ever understand that. Nobody. And that's when seemingly good things become bad. You understand? That's what God's saying. You see, the best evidence of godliness is not the monk who lives in the monastery secluded from people. We've thought that, and, we, and I, there's nothing wrong with that if God calls you to that. But the fact of the matter is, it's really the person who lives a godly life among the crying children, the busy schedules, the foul-mouthed co-workers, the one who's overworking themselves at their career in the rain-soaked days of gloom when they're serving people. Why? Because this is what Jesus did. Plain and simple. And it's what he would continue to do were he here. So when we wear those armbands, what would Jesus do? Sometimes I think we thought up what Jesus would do. He didn't. We need to go back in here and find out what Jesus did. Not what we think he would do. Amen? So here's where the rubber meets the road. Are you a godly person? First, do you take God seriously? And you know today if you have or not. I don't want you to raise your hands. But you know. And be honest about it. Because you can change it if you are. And when you're honest with, with yourself... This is what you'll ask yourself. How serious about God am I? 
What would others say? Would others say I'm serious about God? Well, that would be proof based on what you do most of the time. How you spend your time. How much time they see you in your word of God. How much time you're in it. How much time you're praying. How much time you're serving. How much they see him as a center of your universe. That's what people will notice. What would God say? I mean, how much time per day are you actually spending with him? How many of you, be honest, you know, you can raise your hands on this one because we can help hold each other accountable. How many of you find that the day is gone before you've had time to spend with God? How's, has that ever happened to you? And you're just too pooped to pop anymore, right? You just have nothing left. And before you know it, you've fallen asleep in the chair or whatever, and, you, and it becomes a habit. I've done it. I've even done it on vacation where I've said, I'm on vacation. God's like, really? <laughs> right, Billy? Yeah. Yeah. If you're on vacation, should you stop spending time with God? But we do. We have. We are. In fact, vacation ought to give us more time to spend with God, shouldn't it? You would think. How much counsel is God really giving you? I would say that if you spend time in the Scripture more than you are thinking about things, that you are seeking truly God's counsel. Stop thinking. Start reading. Start practicing. That's where the devil's got us. He wants you to think whatever you think. And you know where that influence comes from? Everything but here. Everything but here. So instead of thinking, go in here. It'll stun you what you'll find out. You'll do something completely different than you would have otherwise. That's a fact, friends. I know because I do it all the time. And the reason is our thinking is influenced way too much by our feelings and our emotions, and that's a problem. I'm not saying you shouldn't have them. Christ had them. But they didn't influence what he did or said, did they? In fact, they never did. And more dangerously, you know what else happens? <laughs> we are influenced by our own human thoughts and the human thoughts of others. Bad idea. Probably wrong almost every time. Secondly, do others consider you to be godly? What would they say? And if others say you are godly, here's my question. Who are they? Are they godly? Ooh. See, we want to hear other people tell us we're godly. But what if they're not? Well, they wouldn't know what godliness is, would they? Flattery will get you everywhere, won't it? So, are they godly people? You see, we wish to be liked by others so much. Or we wish to fit in with others. Or at the very least, we don't want to stand out or be singled out. Anybody? Nobody wants that. And yet, what did Jesus do? What did he do? Instead of saying, what did he, uh, what would he do? I want to know what he did do. What did he do? Well... He was hated. <laughs> he became hated. Say it with me. He was hated. He was hated in an ungodly society. Of course he was. Why? Because he stood on the laws of the Father, on the laws of God, the laws in here. That's why. Yes, and he also warned that society would hate us for doing it too. He straight up said it. He said it in John 15, 18, 15, 18, that we must remember that the world hates us because it first hated him. And what he is saying is that if you are godly, the world is going to hate you. Here's my question. Does the world hate you? Does it hate the church? When the church stands for the godliness and the word of God, it hates it. 
<laughs> Politically, I can prove it all day. You don't, you don't want to get down that road with me. I'll show it to you. Social issues, I'll prove it all day. Because the things that they stand for, the things that they fight for, the things that they begin to hate over, are things that God says, no. No, no, and no. You stand for those things, in a, in a godly perspective, they will hate you. Hate you, just as they hated him. So does the world hate you? Here's the answer. If you're godly, it will soon. Thanks for listening to the Free Life Community Church Podcast. For more great biblically sound teaching, visit freelifecc.com.